a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 95 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and methods of improvement from different sportscasters from all around the country at all different levels. Please make sure to follow the show on Twitter by following me at Radio underscore Logan or on Instagram at Say the Damn Score. And please subscribe to the show on the podcast platform of your choice. We're just about everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn. We are most places. If you're looking for a podcast and can't find it, you let me know, and I'll try to get it there. But right now, I don't anticipate very many people having that issue. Also, please share and retweet this podcast. It really helps the show grow, and I greatly appreciate it. Right now, we are joined by Steve Holman. He is the voice of the Atlanta Hawks, and we are here at the Say the Damn Score mobile studio in the lobby of the Winston-Salem Marriott. And, Steve, we're here for the National Sports Media Association Convention and Hall of Fame Awards, and you're the winner for the state of Georgia. And I've been here before. You've been here a lot. Just talk about the value of this of this event for both yourself and for somebody who's looking to be an up-and-comer? Well, I think, Logan, it's, it's one of those things that's a, it's, it's a convention. Like you said, it's a chance for everybody to, to see everybody. And uh, for me, it's, it's great because we don't normally see each other that much. I mean, we'll, we'll go into a town and play a game, and because of charters and everything now, we fly right out. The other team comes into Atlanta, they fly right out. So you exchange some pleasantries, but you don't really get a chance to – to sit down and talk and, you know, have a cocktail or, or whatever. So, uh, this is a great chance for us to, uh, all kind of see each other and, and get together and, and, and for, for young guys that are coming in and, and girls that are coming in, uh, it's a great chance to network because I think networking, uh, is still one of the major things that, uh, that gets people ahead these days. Yeah. The, this is the fourth time I've been here and the first time was just for that I was talking to going here for the networking and I lived in rural South Dakota where nobody comes through so <laughs> they weren't going to come to me I decided to to come to Salisbury at the time and it's right. been fantastic ever since I love it it's just like you said a great opportunity to have a cocktail with people with their guards down yes exactly yes and you see everybody like from other sports too that we don't normally see uh you know marty brenneman's here from baseball who's a you know iconic broadcaster and get a chance to see him and doc emmerich and you know people that you don't normally run into at what point in your career i shouldn't say what point in your career what point in your life did you know you wanted to go into sports broadcasting? <laughs> that's a funny. Uh, I mean, that's funny because I think most guys that are in this have the same kind of story. Uh, I was eight years old uh, when I would listen to Johnny Most, the old uh, Celtics announcer. You know, uh, I'd be in my dad's car with him uh, sometimes at night and hear the games. And uh, you know, I just 
fell in love with it at that point. And then I started listening to, uh, back in those days, Kurt Gowdy did the Red Sox and, uh, Ned Martin and those people. I grew up in, in Lawrence, Massachusetts. So I listened to all those games, but I decided that I wanted to do it. So I was, uh, in high school, sophomore year, I think, and they had a, uh, a deal called the prep club where, you would meet on Wednesday nights and you could go, they would have doctors, they would have lawyers, they would have, you know, every field would be there. And I, of course, chose the broadcasting from the local radio station. There were two guys there that uh, kind of took me under their, their wing. And uh, I went to that and that was a great opportunity. And then I went to uh, in Lawrence High School, which was right down the street from the radio station. Kirk Gowdy owned the radio station, WCCM in, in Lawrence. They let me go in there and practice days and, uh, I would go back there after school, and then eventually in 1971, uh, one of the guys got called into the service. <laughs> he went into the Navy, you know, because things were still, the Vietnam thing was still going on then, so they put me on weekends, and uh, I would be at school some days, and they'd come to my class and knock on the door, and one of the assistant principals would call me out and say, there's somebody, that they need you at the radio station, somebody's <laughs> out today. So, it, you know, it really it, it blossomed from that. But because I, I got the job at the radio station, I was able to get a pass to the Celtics games and got to eventually worked up the courage to meet Johnny Most, who was my broadcast hero. Uh, eventually, that led to him letting me sit there with him and keep score for him. Uh, I would get his English Oval cigarettes uh, at the time. <laughs> I'd fill up his thermos with his coffee for him. And uh, one thing led to another. And then in 1976, I was 22, and he lost his voice in the middle of a game and back then you know there were no analysts there were uh, nobody else so it was Johnny and there was me and he, he had the stick mic and uh, he said uh, now I'm going to give it to Steve. Steve's going to do the rest of the game <laughs> and he handed me the microphone and I was on WBZ which clear channel 50,000 watt station you know heard in 26 states in Canada in, in the you know in those days and uh, there I did the game and uh, one thing led to another. I did a couple more weeks while he was recovering, and uh, I got a job in Boston from that at the CBS station. And then the guy who was my program director uh, at, at the CBS station came to Atlanta to start an all-news station, and he called me and said, uh, do you want to come to Atlanta? And I was like, well, I've never been to Atlanta. He goes, well, uh, he said, we can either fly you and your wife there to look at it, or we can give you $800 to move. So I said, okay, I'll take the $800 to move. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was 1980, and I've been there ever since. A lot of stuff to unpack out of that. I want to go back to getting pulled out of school to yeah. go to the radio station. What did your teachers say to that? Well, they liked it. I mean, I was sort of a, a quasi-celebrity, you know, back in those <laughs> days at the high school. Uh, and, and, and what happened was, too, you know, go back to that, between my junior and senior year in high school, uh, Kurt Gowdy called me into his office and told me they were going to make me full time. And I was like, gee, thank you, Mr. Gowdy. That's great. He goes, Stevie, it's 110 a week and all the records you can steal. <laughs> and that was my first full time job. And then he, I was on the way out. He was said, and you get Blue Cross too. So, uh, I mean, that was, I mean, for me, that was tremendous, you know, living at home. I was going to be a senior in high school. So I would do morning drive at the uh, radio station and then go to school after that, uh, right up the street. Did you steal any records? Oh, I have plenty of records, yeah. I have, uh, <laughs> one of my first ones that I stole was the Blue 45, Todd Rundgren. Uh, I saw the light when it came out <laughs> in 1972. Uh, that one I have still at home. <laughs>
doing that Celtics game when Johnny Most just handed you the mic, I'm assuming you didn't prepare for it like you were going to do the game in that situation. No. Was that the first game you had ever done? Well, no, I had done games, okay. you know, high school so what games. So what was going through your mind at that well, moment? Well, I had prepared from the time I was eight years old. I mean, I knew every tagline on WBZ. I knew all of the, <laughs> you know, this broadcast is, uh, you know, presented uh, by the authority of uh, the National Basketball Association at WBZ. And I, I had it all. I mean, I knew it all. And I was able to get through it. But as soon as I got through with it, you know, I was like, oh, my God, what had happened? What did I just do? <laughs> and uh, And they called me. From the radio station, uh, the Celtics were playing in Detroit the next night, and there's no, you know, there were charter flights, no charter flights. It was all commercial. So they called me, and that they said, can you go to Detroit tomorrow? And I said, well, yeah, of course I can go to Detroit. And they said, well, your ticket will be there with the team and, uh, you know, what such and such a flight. And uh, then off I went. That's bizarre. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I, I you know, I, no. I keep it. On, I keep that broadcast on my phone too. I have it. I was going to say, did you still have the tape? And you have it on. I your do. Phone. I have it on my phone. I had put it on iTunes and then uh, you know downloaded it. And I have a, I have a lot of that kind of stuff. When's the last time you listened to it? Uh, actually, not too long ago, they did a story uh, on me at the Athletic in Atlanta, uh, and the 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 fellow that was doing the interview wanted to. No, if I had that, I said, "Yeah, well, I got it right here." So they put they included it in the the story in the athletic. So uh, it was a very nice story that they did too. It, you know, on my thirty five years now and the two thousand five hundred and eighty one consecutive games. Yep, we'll definitely get there. Yeah, <laughs> I want to go back to getting up the courage to introduce yourself to Johnny Most and ask to do stats. What did that process? What's the story behind that? And what did you learn from him? Well, I. I in fact, the scorecard that I use now, I still is the same one that I used for Johnny, which was the one that he actually developed himself, and I kind of, you know, expanded on it. And uh, but I, it was, he was very nice. I mean, I went up to him and uh, told him who I was, and I was a big fan of his, and he was very nice right from the beginning. So I would sit there with him. He let me sit with him, and then I would occasionally hand him a note or some stat or something. And then eventually he just let me keep score for him. And at the beginning of every game, he would start the, the broadcast as he always did. Uh, you know, Johnny most time of courtside where the Boston Celtics and I would hold up the uh, notes for him to what team we were playing. So I would point to the team we were playing and he would say that team, uh, you know, so we're playing that night. And I, when I broadcast now, I start my broadcasts by saying, high above courtside where the Atlanta Hawks and whoever about to do basketball battle, which was Johnny's signature opening. So before Johnny passed, uh, early in the 90s, I said to him, I said, you know, John, I would like to do this as a tribute to you to open my broadcast every night that way. And, you know, he cried, I cried, and it was, uh, and he was just so happy that I uh, did that. And, you know, I still do it now every game. I, I start the same way. And I'm sure most people don't know why I do that or, you know, why I open my broadcast that way, but it's it's a tribute to him. And you also, if I read correctly, also use his catchphrase, bang, which uh, everybody right, bang. Cre- everybody a- credits to Mike Breen, but you got uh, it from Johnny Most, and yeah, he so got it from t- you. Mike Breen got it from me, and he'll tell you that himself, too. Um, you know, it's, it's not that original bang, yeah. but, uh, you know, Johnny did it all the time. He stops and pops, bang. That was Johnny's thing, stops and pops, bang. And now I use it for big calls. And what happened was Mike Breen was uh, doing sports on the Imus show, 
years ago. He would do the, the sports cast drop-ins, and they would play highlights of various games. And uh, this is the way Mike told me. He said, you know, he would listen to my calls on these highlights, and bang, you know, so he picked up on it. And and you're right, because he's he's on national, he's on ABC and ESPN, and, you know, people just say, they always say to me, well, you say, bang, you know, you took that from Mike Breen. Uh, Mike Breen is younger than, not a whole lot younger than me, but he's younger than me. He started after I did, and, you know, he took it from me. So he always gets a, a, a good laugh out of that when I see him. Uh, do, do you tell him he needs to pay you royalties for that? No, but he <laughs> no, he, he always tells me, bang, when he sees me. You know, that's <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I know, I heard you on the on the TV the other night. What did you learn from Kurt Gowdy being around a legendary figure like that early on in your career? Uh, what influence did that have on you? Well, he was just, he was terrific to me. I mean, he would uh, go out of his way for the young young people that were broadcasting there at the radio station. Uh, some of them are uh, have gone on to big things too. Uh, Ed Coleman at uh, WFAN has been there for you know years and years. Did the Mets and he we worked together uh, back in the early seventies. And Kurt Gowdy Jr. Uh, was part of that that young crew that was working there for Kurt Senior. And uh, of course, Kurt now has gone on. He was an executive producer at ABC and did all the Kentucky Derbies that they did for years and years. And now he runs SNY, the uh, the Mets network. So he's been around for a long time too, and and we we all started together as kids. Have you ever considered going national? Is that something that's ever been on your plate with the relationships you have and the length of time that you've been at this job? I'm sure you've had opportunities. Well, Why did you see? The funny thing is, I started out. You know, when I when I set out to do this, I wanted to be Johnny Most or Chick Hearn or Vin Scully or one of those guys that would do the same team for years and years and years and become like the person that people grew up with. And I, I set out to do that. Now, on the other hand, Brad Nessler, Mankato, Minnesota, from uh, from Minnesota, he started working at the, at the radio station at Atlanta the same time I did. And his goal right from the beginning was to, to go network. And, of course, he's he's done it, you know, ESPN, and now he's the lead voice on the SEC uh, game of the week and, you know, but but that was his path. I mean, we did Falcons together for five years uh, in the early 80s. And then, you know, he went on, he, he did the Vikings for a while, which was one of his dream jobs. And then he got on ESPN and now he's, you know, uh, moved on to that. But that was his, he set out to do network. That was what he wanted to do. And I wanted to be that local guy. And, you know, God knows he's made a lot more money than I have over the years. Uh, but one of the things that I like about doing what I do is that now uh, people will come up to me and they'll have their little kids with them and they'll want to take a picture and have the, 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 the child take a picture with me and say, you know, uh, when you know, I was your age, Johnny, uh, you know, I used to listen to Mr. Holman uh, every night. And, and I really get a kick out of that when people come up to me now and, you know, people your age come up with their kids and, they, you know, they say they want to take a picture and, uh, that's what it's all to me. That's what it's all about. I mean, I just love that. So one of the things I personally have always loved about being the voice of a team, and what I kind of miss about not having it right now, is just being able to, you know, build those relationships with coaches and getting able to know the players a little bit. And at the small college level, it's not that hard to do. Right? Are you able to do that at the NBA level? How has that changed over thirty years? Well, I mean, back in when I first started, you know, I was. 35 years younger than I am now. So, 
uh, a lot of the players were almost the same age as me. Doc Rivers, John Konkak, people like that, Steve Smith. So when we were all basically the same age, you know, uh, Doc and his kids and his wife would come over and Konkak would come over to my house and, you know, we would have the blender going with margaritas and stuff in the summer and uh, the kids were all running around, my kids, their kids. So, I mean, but now, I mean, it's a lot different because we've got five players on our team now, including the, the ones from the draft the other night, that are going to be 21 or younger <laughs> on opening night. So it's a little bit harder to, uh, you know, relate to all of them now because they are, you know, younger than my kids. And, um, but, but our guys are all very nice. I mean, they're very receptive to, to meeting you. And, and one of the things our team has done, Travis Schlenk, our general manager has brought in, uh, not only good players, but he's brought in character guys. He, he interviews them and, uh, goes through everything, and they're very, very nice. Uh, John Collins, uh, whose parents were both military, went to Wake Forest here, you know, in Winston-Salem. Uh, he always, right from the beginning when he was a rookie, would say, good morning, you know, how are And I could always tell uh, over the years the players that go out of their way to say hello to the broadcasters, to, you know, people that are in the traveling party, whatever, those are the guys that are going to make it. They're going to be successful. And John Collins has been that right from the start. Trey Young is terrific that way. Very nice, very nice kid. Um, in fact, when he won a game last year, uh, one of the games that he won, he had very a few very exciting finishes. And uh, the, the winning basket made it on ESPN with my call for the radio call. So, of course, everybody was excited for, for Trey and everything. And the next day when I saw him, uh, he came up to me and he said, uh, he said, Hey, voice, we made it on Sports Center last night. <laughs> and I was like, Yeah, we did. <laughs> you know, so I mean, not many guys would go out of their way to say that I was on Sports Center with him, you know, with his, his big moment. So that, that to me was, that said a lot. Tell us the story about your introduction to Josh Smith when he played for the Hawks. Uh, Josh, well, well, Josh is one of those kids from Atlanta. You know, he grew up in Atlanta. And, uh, one of the first things he told me was that his dad, uh, would make him listen to my games in the car. He said he wanted to listen to music, but his dad would listen to the games, so <laughs> he had to listen to me. And the same thing when Dwight Howard came to the Hawks, it was the same thing. I mean, he was, you know, he, here's a kid that grew up in Atlanta, listened to me, and now they're playing for the Hawks. Uh, but Josh was, Josh was funny. I mean, Josh was always, you know, I got a lot of mileage out of Josh Smith with some of his, uh, three point shots and, uh, you know, why, why Josh? Why did you, why? And everybody, comes up to me now and they always go, why, why Josh? You know, <laughs> uh, like, um, we had Dennis Schroeder on our team too, a few years ago. And, uh, one night we were in Sacramento and in Atlanta, it was like one in the morning. I think we were down by a point and he came up the floor and he heaved up a three that was an air ball. And I was like, and I, you know, I don't plan any of these calls. I mean, this was just, it, it happened. I was like, and for the love of God, Dennis Schroeder just shot an air ball. We're down by one. <laughs> And, of course, the flagship station in Atlanta that carries the games, they use that clip incessantly <laughs> now. You know, whenever I'm on as a guest or whatever, they run that clip. They run it in promos. So almost everywhere I go, whether I'm in the grocery store or the bank or, you know, whatever, people will recognize me and they'll say, oh, for the love of God, you know, that's, that's become kind of a, uh, you know, signature thing of mine, you know, by accident. When you 
make statements like that, and obviously that's pretty innocent because it's for the love of God he shot an air ball. Right. But do you have you ever had players get mad at a call where you've had to explain it, or has that no, not no? Been they, an issue? They're usually pretty good. I mean, a lot of times they're oblivious to it, you know, <laughs> and they only hear about it through other people because, of course, mm-hmm. they're playing the game; they don't hear the game, but they do hear from uh, from other people that you know you said this or you said that or. So they get it secondhand, which isn't always right all the time. Uh, but there's never been really any, you know, we, we have more laughs than we have anybody gets mad at the, stuff like that. I want to go back to talking about keeping your own stats. And um, obviously we do that at the small college and high school level. I'm imagining there's not that many people who still rely on handwritten stats uh, at the NBA where you have them all, I'm assuming, right. spoon-fed to you. Well, I, do, I mean, I have the computer that has the stats on it you know, at the game. So I, I rely on that, but I keep my own stats, which not a lot, like you're right. not a lot of people do that anymore. Uh, but when I make my scorecard out in the morning, either when we're at home, I do it at home. Uh, when we're on the road, I usually do it at shoot around, uh, you know, we're 10 o'clock in the morning, whatever, go over. And for me, it helps me retain the information because I write everything down, uh, all the stats that I want to keep on my little card. So I can remember that stuff for the, that night. And, uh, and it keeps me more in the game because I keep the, I don't write down like two, 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 two for baskets or I write a, a continuing score like two, four, five mm-hmm. with a free throw with a circle around it. If they miss a free throw, it's an open circle. Uh, three pointer, I put a line underneath and I keep a, like, you know, it goes up eight points, 11 points. So I can look down immediately and say, so and so's got, 14 now after that basket and I look on my little sheet I have and that's his 39 three-pointer of the year so just little things like that that I I pick up from that how has preparation changed over 30 years being a veteran I mean with the with the coming of the internet how did you get the information before you could just type in google Trey Young and find well, out have, all of his college stats you're right I mean we have uh well, we have a uh, NBA has a, a media page that gives you all the stats, like they they do right in the notes. So I can get that in the morning, and that helps me a lot with the uh, with my scorecard. But before then, I would have to wait till I got to the game actually to do the to do my scorecard because they didn't have you know no internet, nothing else. So I was not going to get those stats. So I had to wait till I got to the game to do it. And uh, so this, you know, the the. Computers and everything have been been very uh, friendly to all of us, but uh, so but did you have the, to get there really early to get it. Well, I always of... get there early anyway. Okay. For a seven thirty game, I'm usually to the arena by four thirty five o'clock okay. because I don't want to. And this is something I tell when I speak to college kids and and high school kids. And the the main thing I start and stress to everybody is be early for everything. You know, don't, you don't want to be in traffic or have to rush in right before the game starts or, you know, just you can get there, you can relax, you can spread out all of your equipment, your stuff, and and get ready and set up your water bottle and, you know, everything else. And then you don't have to worry about anything. Because also when you get to the game, uh, you know this, because people start, you know, kibitzing and you talk and everybody's, you know, and you don't really have a chance to do all that preparation stuff. So it's all done. You set it up and do it. But I always tell kids, Make sure you're early for everything. And I always start out by saying, if you've got a 9 o'clock interview somewhere, you know, for a job or whatever, be there at 8.30. Don't be there at 9 or 9.10. 
If you're there at 830, the person that's going to interview you for your job is probably going to come in at quarter or nine and see you in the lobby. You can say, hello, I'm, uh, you know, I'm Steve. I'm here to interview. That makes an impression. And it also makes an impression if you show up at 10 after 9 and say, oh, gee, there was all kinds of traffic on the uh, on the freeway and the connector. And, uh, you know, I, there was an accident. I could. Nobody wants to hear that. That's why you leave early for things. You know, that's why I leave my house at 4 o'clock in the afternoon to go to a game that starts at 7.30. Was there ever a moment where you had to learn that lesson the hard way early on, or did were you always just No, I was way? always that way because I had started out in radio, you know, when I was a kid. So uh, I was always early for everything. And it's just because your your life is run by a clock. You know, when you're in our business, uh, everything's done by a clock. And, uh, and so I always have been early for everything. I just know that Atlanta Doctors is... Doctor's appointments or anything. Yeah. I'm always early. I've, the only place I've ever been to Atlanta is the airport, but I know that they're known for just horrendous traffic. Right. Have, have you ever had close calls with a bad traffic jam or anything? Uh, nothing tremendously close. I mean, there were a few times uh, there had been bad traffic on the highway, but because I had left so early, you know, I was able to get there in plenty of time and, and, and no problems, but... Uh, yeah, you're right. Traffic is is not exactly uh, a day at the beach in Atlanta. It, it's comparatively to major markets, Minneapolis probably isn't that bad. But coming from small town South Dakota, I think it's like right, the worst right. thing in the world. But um, the next thing I want to get to is I don't I didn't have time because this was kind of a short notice deal to find the exact number, but 2,500 plus consecutive games without missing one. Right, 2,581 as of right now. Who keeps track of that? You or the team? Uh, the team. Well, the team started around 2,000 or so. Uh, actually, at a thousand, I guess was the first time somebody brought it to my attention that it was coming up on a thousand. So they gave me a ball, you know, with the painted and all that for one thousand. Then they gave me another one at two thousand, and uh, you know. God willing, I'll be around for 3,000, uh, but right now it's 2,581 consecutive, which, you know, is it's something I'm very proud of. I, I, I love it that I've been able to do that. Uh, you know, on the other hand, if I walk out of the Marriott here in Winston-Salem and got hit by a bus, somebody would do the game opening night, you know, and they'd say, oh, that's too bad about Steve, he got hit by a bus, <laughs> you know. So uh, it's one of those things that I, I take a lot of pride in, but, uh, you know, Chick had the record of uh, 30 – Almost thirty three hundred, I think, consecutive. Thirty three hundred and change. Yeah, thirty three, whatever. Did see that, and I know I, I can do it. I have a, ch- I, you know, I'm sixty five. He was eighty six when he stopped, and the only thing to stop Chick at that point was he died. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, so hopefully I'll, you know, stay kicking for another ten years. So or let's so see, twenty five hundred to get to thirty three. I do eighty two. We, we do eighty two. A games couple a playoff year. runs. You yeah. can get there in less I, than I don't a decade. Count, I don't count any preseason. Okay. I know some guys count their preseason games. I never have. I just count regular season and playoffs. Have you missed a preseason game? Uh, no. Not, so if not, you did count it, it would be higher. Oh yeah, it'd be a lot higher. Yeah, I, I, you know, but we don't do all the uh, preseason games. You know, some some years we do, some years we don't. A lot of it's up to the flagship station. But anyway, I never counted those. But uh, when I first started at eighty five, eighty six, John Sterling would do the TV and I would do the radio. So I was doing about 50 or so, but I didn't count those towards the streak. I only counted the streak when he left to go do the Yankees, which was in March of 89. He went to spring training. So I probably have another 200 or so that I don't count towards the streak, but the streak's 25-81. Uh, we also missed uh, 16 games one year 
and 32 another for the lockouts, the two lockouts. So otherwise, I'd have another 49. I'd be over 2,600 right now <laughs> if we didn't have those lockouts. What do you do during a lockout to, I mean, obviously, I, in the NBA, I'm assuming that you're compensated pretty well, but not well enough that if you all of a sudden are just not being paid because of a lockout that you don't feel a little bit of a sting. Well, what did you do during the lockout? Well, the teams are nice about that. I mean, you have a contract, and they're going to, you know, unless something extremely bad happens, like a whole season goes or whatever, they're, they're going to pay you. But uh, the last time we had a lockout, I had a grandson born in November, which it worked out perfectly because if we had been playing, I wouldn't have been able to be there. Uh, for his, uh, his birth, he's going to be eight in November. So, uh, I was able to be there for that. And, uh, you know, otherwise you just wait and watch Woj on the, uh, <laughs> you know, on the Twitter and see what's, what's happening and when the thing's going to break, you know. How does he know everything before everybody else does? Uh, that's a good question. Is he, I, is he secretly like into like witchcraft or well, something? No, I, I, well, that could be, but I think he, you know, he's so big now and, and, and so important in that field that, I think a lot of agents go to him right away because they like the idea of, oh, I was the one who told Woj this, or, you know, like there could be people in front offices too that will leak stuff to him because they want to say that they were the ones that, you know, without anybody knowing it, they want to tell their buddies, you know. So he's, he's, he's reached that point now and he's going to be here for the, I think he's going in on the national uh, on Monday night. So we were. I was joking with someone that he knew he won the award before the. Uh, he probably the, did before the votes were tabulated. Yeah, and he twittered it. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, but he he's reached that status now where people call him. Uh, you know, I mean, he worked very hard to get to where he is, but he's to the point now where they call him. He doesn't have to call anybody. They all call him. I want to go back to the streak for a little bit. If this was a normal radio show going all out of sequence, probably wouldn't be the best thing. But no, it's a podcast, okay. so we're right. going to go. That's fine. What's the closest you ever came to missing a game in that 2,500 plus? Was there, did you, somebody get sick? Well, or yeah, I mean, I've been sick. sick. I've been yeah. sick a few times, but luckily my doctor's pretty good and they give me a shot of steroids or something and, you know, I get through the game okay. Um, the closest I came, uh, my oldest son, Steve Jr., passed away in January of 2018, uh, you know, right during the season. And, uh, he was in hospice and then I was with him and, and he passed at like one in the morning, uh, on Friday morning. And there was a game Friday night and I did the game because that's the way he would want it. You know, he would want that. And they did a tribute. The Hawks put a video tribute. He was a ball boy from the time he was 11 through all the way through high school. So I did the game. And then the day of his funeral, uh, we had his funeral mass at 10 a.m. And I had to speak at it. You know, I did the the eulogy and everything. We went back to the arena that afternoon because the uh, Hawks ownership people were terrific. They put on a whole reception in one of the courtside clubs. Uh, that they paid for everything and two or three hundred of his buddies and family and everything else was there. And we had a game that night too. And they all, uh, the team got them a box and everybody stayed and, and I did the game that night. So those were two of the hardest games that I've ever done. Uh, and people say, well, you know, why would you do that when, when your son passed or number one, what am I going to do? Stay home and look at the walls. You know, number two, it's what I do. And number three, he was, he was more proud of that streak than I was, you know, <laughs> so he would not have stood for the fact that I would miss a game because, you know, he passed away. So 
Were that there, was tough. I mean, that was tough. Were there people who tried to talk you out of it? Uh, not really. No, not, nobody in my family did because they knew. I mean, they knew that it was what I do. You know, there were a few people probably in the office that, you know, wondered why I was doing it. or And I'm, I'm sure that there were people, you know, without my knowledge that probably poo-pooed it that I was doing the game. You know, how could he do this? Uh, but that's that's why I did it, because he would want me to do it. And and uh, like I say, what was I going to do? Just, if I didn't do the game, what would I do? I'd sit at home and cry and look at the wall. And so, I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, my family... Uh, my second family has been the Hawks family for 35 years. So I, it was, for me, being with family was the way to do it. I can't imagine having to go through something like that. I'm sure it was very, very difficult, but this is not a, it's a broadcasting podcast. I don't, I'm not here to like play getcha or anything, right, but right. I just imagine how did you get back into a, it's a very regimented routine that you have to be in. How did you find the, Motivation's not the right word, but how were you not able to lose your maybe Emotion passion or, a little yeah. bit? Um, no, I, the reason I did, I kept it because of of him. I mean, I, he was able to push me through it. And you know, that day uh, I did my scorecard like I usually do in the morning at home, and uh, you know, did all of that. So it, it actually helped me. It was a therapy for me uh, to to do everything like I normally do. <clears throat> you know, and, and do it that night. But the the hardest thing for me was the night, uh, the actual night that he passed, because they did a tribute to him on the video board, which I didn't know they were doing. The Hawks did, and it was you know right before the game started, and it was it was tough. I mean, I work with Mike Conti is my pregame, halftime, postgame uh, guy, and I said to him during, I said, look, you better be ready to, you know, you might have to start this because I don't know how I'm gonna be after that but it was i was okay i mean it was but it was a very nice thing that they did so tough to transition from that but no it's okay i want to move on to the uh the dream team two when you covered them when they were in the atlanta oh 96 yeah the olympics obviously everybody talks about the original dream team that team was pretty good as well uh what was the experience covering the basketball team in the olympics well i did the basketball and i called the women's gold medal game uh, it was on NBC Sports, well, Mutual Network now, which now is Westwood One. Uh, so I was able to, I called several of the men's games, uh, and I did the uh, U.S. game against Lithuania, I think it was, and a couple others. But my, the highlight for me that, that time was doing the gold medal game for the women, uh, because that was a great women's team uh, in 96, and they were just starting to, to Who was blossom. on that team? Oh, Teresa Edwards and... Uh, um, the coach from Stanford, uh, was, was the coach. And I mean, there were a lot of, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and they, they beat Brazil, I think, for the championship. So I have that on, on tape too, but that was a thrill. But the, the thing I remember the most about the 96 Olympics was, you know, not only did I work my butt off for three weeks or whatever it was, you know, because I did sports updates on, on Mutual or Westwood One at the same time. And, uh, but before the, uh, one of the boxing, the, the gold, the only gold medal that the U.S. won, um, they were having the boxing at Georgia Tech. And we were in the, the uh, they called it the International Broadcast Center, which was the Georgia World Congress Center, where they have everything set up. And Larry Michael, who does the Redskins games now, uh, was, was running uh, Mutual Sports then. 
and he got called back to Washington for some emergency, or I, I don't know exactly what it was. And they said to me, uh, well, you're going to go over and do the boxing tonight <laughs> over at Georgia Tech. And I was like, well, I've never done boxing. You know, and they said, oh, it's all right. So it's basketball with gloves on. <laughs> so I went and called the boxing, and it turns out it was the only gold medal that the U.S. won. And, it, and luckily, I worked with uh, the great John Saracino, uh, you know, from USA Today, and he's a boxing expert. And he really helped me through that. But uh, to me, that was one of the that was one of the things that uh, <laughs> it was one of the highlights of that '96 Olympics. Yeah, that's one of the. And I talked about this in other episodes. So I don't want to talk about it too long, but one of the chances. One of the things about moving to Minneapolis from South Dakota is I've got to just kind of dabble in some of the, the sports that I never would have had a right. chance to, swimming, gymnastics, lacrosse. <laughs> right. Was there any hesitation when they said, hey, we need you to do boxing, or did you say, hey, I'm going to try it, I'm going to do my best? And uh, Well, I didn't have a chance. To, I tried to hesitate, but they wouldn't <laughs> let me. They said, you're going to do it. So I was okay, I'll do it. They said, don't worry, it's boxing with gloves. You know, it's basketball with gloves on. So and and John helped me through it. So I, I mean, it was it was actually it was play by play. I mean, is what it was. If you can do play by play, I guess uh, basketball or baseball or football, you know, it just goes over into boxing. It's radio, so there's a left and a right, a left and you know, you know mm-hmm. and there it was. Where were you at during the bombing? Um, I think I had just gotten home. Um, it was like one in the morning, and I had just arrived home, I believe, because the TV was on. And my wife said, did you see this or did you get out of there okay? I said, well, yes. I, you know, I didn't know anything had happened. And, but I was already home that night. So uh, that did, was a, that was terrible. How did that affect the rest of your time at the Olympics? Well, it, it, I think it affected everybody, uh, you know, because of what had happened and somebody died. And, uh, you know, it was awful. I mean, it was and, – and I think a lot of us that, you know, lived in Atlanta, uh, from Atlanta at the time and – uh, a lot of the national people, you know, had come in for the Olympics, so it was didn't hit as close to home, I don't think, because Atlanta was very, very proud of having the Olympics. I mean, this was a major thing to have the Olympics, and then to have a stain on it like that was something that everybody was like, oh, my goodness, you know, how could this have happened? And then the whole thing with Richard Jewell, and now there's going to be a movie that they're doing in Atlanta now on, on the Richard Jewell story, how he got railroaded on that whole thing and the, you know the poor guy he's passed away now too from all of that so um you know it was a dark time but uh, you know everybody carried through and uh i think the olympics were were a huge success because you know when it ended there and uh, muhammad ali came out there and lit that flame uh you know that was that was one of the highlights of the whole thing so forgot that that's where that happened what was what was it like in the arena at that moment when he did that well nobody knew he was going to do it i mean the only i think the only people that knew were maybe Billy Payne, who ran the Olympics, and I think Dick Ebersol from NBC had arranged for that, and nobody else knew. I mean, nobody knew that he was in town. Uh, you know, it was a well-guarded secret, and then he lit that flame, and, and so people went crazy, and uh, I actually got to meet him. Uh, they brought him in the next day to the broadcast center, the International Broadcast Center at the World Congress Center to interview him, so I got John Saracino, actually, he's the one who snapped a, a you know, we didn't have cell phones back then. So he snapped a picture on one of the, I had one of those cardboard, you know, <laughs> uh, cameras that you buy in the, in the drugstore. And, uh, you know, I have a picture that I still, I still keep that with me. You had at times chances to dabble. Uh, you said five years with the Atlanta Falcons. Right. Uh, I read you were at some point involved with Georgia Tech. 
How did those come up and why did you decide to give those up and stay with just the Hawks? Well, I wanted to do NBA. That was my main, that's what I, I was born to do NBA, I think, you know, and I, that's what I always wanted to do. But, you know, when I came to Atlanta, the situation was that they had the Falcons on the radio station, you know, didn't have the Hawks then. Uh, so I did Falcons. We also did Brad and I also did, uh, from time to time, the Atlanta Chiefs soccer team, uh, indoor and out. Uh, I remember I did the game in the Omni, uh, when Slim Whitman came and performed at the end. Uh, Slim Whitman, for those that are too young to remember, he was a, a TV sensation, uh, on like KTEL Records. You know, they had an ad where <laughs> Slim Whitman was singing, uh, Uma Paluma Blanca. You know, that was a big, he was one of the first big, uh, stars from the TV infomercials because he was only a B-level country music singer when he was, you know, when he was in it. But this TV thing made him, you know, they sold millions and millions of his albums. So at a soccer game, at one of the indoor soccer games, they were bringing him in to perform after the soccer game. So, uh, we're at the Omni on the indoor soccer. And I'm calling the game at the beginning. Well, not many people there. Halftime, there started to be more people. Third, you know, second half, there were more and more. And by the end of the game, the place was packed. And they all came to see Slim Whitman. So that was like, uh, it was amazing. You know, that, that was one of the, that was one of the fun nights. What? But Georgia Tech, I did some games on Georgia because they were on our flagship station. And, uh, the, the great Al Seraldo, the late great Al Seraldo was doing games, uh, for Georgia Tech, football, basketball. Uh, Brad Nessler was doing some with him. And with the tournaments, uh, coming into town, the ACC tournament, and we had the regionals, uh, in 80 or 81, I think it was, at the Omni. So we all took turns doing a game. And it turns out the game I had at the Omni, uh, was the famous, uh, Danny Ainge, Brigham Young game against Notre Dame. When he brought the ball up the floor and scored and, and, and Brigham Young won that game. And that became a big national story. And I, uh, like Pat O'Brien played it on his radio show, that clip. And I still have that one too. Uh, so it was just luck of the draw that I had that game. And, you know, lo and behold, it was the Danny Ainge famous game. So, uh, I called that one. What do you do at this point in your career to, to continue to improve? Well, I like to listen to everybody. Uh, you know, I have the NBA Game Time app on my phone. Uh, I don't watch the games that much on it. I listen to everybody. Uh, and for, for people that are listening that want to listen to NBA games, you can get it for, I think it's nine ninety nine or twelve ninety nine for the whole year for just the radio part of it. I think it's called NBA Lite if you scroll down when you go to NBA Game Time. Uh, and that way you can listen to every broadcast. Like you can pick a game and you can pick out either broadcast. So I do that a lot of times on the plane when we're flying from Atlanta to somewhere or between two cities. I listen to everybody, you know, especially those West Coast games. Tim Roy does the Golden State, does a great job. And so I try to listen to everybody. I listen to, to college announcers. I listen to everybody and say, gee, that's a good idea. I think I'll, you know, try to remember to do that. Or, you know, the best thing to do is listen to everybody and take the best of everybody. Uh, that's, that's a good, you know, something to, for young broadcasters too. Um, you know, you don't copy, you don't so much copy people, but you can take ideas that they have and the way they do things and, and incorporate it into yours. So, you know, I mean, I like to think that I'm better now than I was 20 years ago, uh, because I try to improve on everything. And, uh, the, the biggest thing is you don't want to say, uh, you know, I've done this 35 years and uh, you're not going to tell me how to change anything or do it. And, and, and one of the things I like to try to do is stay, uh, 
stay young enough with our young guys, you know, be relevant with them. Uh, don't be the get off my lawn type guy. <laughs> you know, don't do that. Don't say this is the way we've always done it. Don't do that. You know, that's the way I think I've been able to do it for so long is to, to be able to, to roll with it a little bit. I mean, I'll, I'll listen to, uh, sometimes some of the, you know, hip hop, rap music, stuff like that. And I'll pick out a line or two, uh, <laughs> and I'll throw it out in the elevator to the guys, the young guys. And they'll be like, Hey, you know, Steve's cool. You know, <laughs> the old guy's cool. So, uh, you know, I try to stay up that way. What's the last thing that you can remember that you took from someone and implemented the idea into your broadcast? Um, I'm trying to remember what, what the latest thing that I put in there. Uh, I think it was something about, like, when you say how many three-pointers they've made in the season. I heard somebody do that. Actually, at a baseball game. You know how they, when somebody hits a home run, they'll say right away that's his 23rd home run and his 93rd RBI or whatever? So that's why I write that down now, so I can say that three-pointer was his 39th or 40th of the year. I think that's one of the latest things that I added in. One of the things I like to ask everybody about is their broadcast horror stories. And when I say that, it's... Not a real horror story. It's when something goes horribly wrong with all the equipment failing or, you know, I've had people get beer thrown on them at games by fans or oh, I've had that just too. all sorts yeah, of just crazy that. things yeah. that can happen in this business over 30-plus uh, years. Uh, just give me a couple of yours. Well, I did have beer thrown on me in game five of the uh, Celtics uh, series against the Hawks that the Hawks won in 88. Uh, you know, the famous Dominique Larry Bird series, game seven. Well, game five, we won in Boston. So I was standing up doing my routine, you know, and this guy behind me threw two beers right on top of my head uh, because he, I guess he didn't like my act. So uh, that was one. Uh, and as far as the broadcast problems, uh, a few years ago we were in Indianapolis and everything went totally out. I mean, there was no – and the engineer was like a fill-in engineer – so he was trying to figure out what was going on. So I ended up doing the first half of that game on, on my cell phone, on the iPhone. Uh, you know, I had to do it that way, just on the phone. And there was a game at home at, at the arena, uh, that the stuff went out like that. And I did that part of the game on the, on the phone too. So you have to improvise. Uh, you know, I said, look, just put me on the phone. I'll do it. You know, so, uh, you know, you just have to go along and you have to make it work. Over the years, the Hawks have been pretty good. They've never really been great, but they haven't. They've had a few stretches where maybe they were bad. How do you keep the same energy and the same interest level up for the listener uh, when they're in that down cycle? Well, it, it's harder. I mean, it's it's mo- a lot more fun to win. I mean, it's a much easier thing to do when when they win. But what I always did uh, on the years like J.R. Ryder came and we went. You know, we went into a, a slump then of, I think, eight or nine years without making the playoffs. So what I would always do is every night we're zero and zero. I would go into every night, you know, it, because if you start going into into a game and say, oh, man, we're 13 and 42 or whatever, you know, there's no hope. What are we going to – you can't do that because people are listening to you uh, for in, enjoyment, for entertainment. They're not listening. I mean, they've had problems at work. They've had problems at home. They probably had an argument with their wife or their, their kids were, did something. And so they're listening to the game to try to get away from all their problems. 
So you don't want to give them more problems. Say, oh, my God, we're 13 and 32 or, you know. So you have to be upbeat. You have to present it like we're zero. and Everybody's equal tonight. When the game starts, they throw the ball in the air. It's You look at it just like it's the first game you ever did. Or I, I like to say what I do is I broadcast like it's my first game and my last game. So you want to do it the same way every night. There's a ton of great broadcasters in Atlanta, and we'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about this because you won the Georgia State Broadcaster of the Year Award. You said it was your third time. Right. Uh, what does that mean to you? It's it's one of the bigger uh, awards, I think, because it's voted on by people in the business. You know, the, the people that belong to the National Sports Media Association are all broadcasters, writers, or whatever people that you work with. So uh, I think it carries a lot of weight that way. I mean, you know, there are other things. I'm in the Georgia Radio Hall of Fame. I'm in the Georgia Association of Broadcasters. I'm in the Atlanta Sports Hall of Fame. But this is the one where they actually, people that are in the business vote for you. So uh, to me, it's a, it's, it's, it's a very nice thing to win. And, and to win it three times is just, you know, beyond uh, what you can imagine. Where do you keep your, your plaques I have trophies, whatever they're called. I have them in various places around the house, but the the, uh, the sportscaster of the year ones I keep in a prominent spot right over my bookshelf in the living room, and I keep. I know one side I have the one thousand ball, and the other side I have the two thousand ball, and in the middle I have my plaque from the Atlanta Sports Hall of Fame, which I that was a big one for me too because actual athletes are in the Atlanta Sports Hall of Fame. Hank Aaron, Dominique, you know, people like that are in that Hall of Fame. And to be in that, you know, Skip, Skip Gary's in it, uh, Ernie, uh, you know, Ernie Johnson Sr., uh, the late Ernie Johnson, and Pete Van Weeren, guys like that are, are in that Atlanta Sports Hall of Fame. So that was a big thing. So I keep that up there. I keep the – now it'll be three of these uh, awards from the from here and the two balls. That's what I keep in the, the main. And upstairs I have a little office, and I keep pictures. They, they gave me a, a, a jersey – for my 2000th game, I have that framed and put up there and, you know, various pictures, uh, that kind of thing. When you pass Chick Hearn and get the... <laughs> when? I hope I do. We yes. should say, when slash if you pass Chick Hearn to get to 3,300 and whatever yeah. and one. Right. Will you take a day off? Uh, no, I don't think <laughs> I will, no. I think I'll be like Cal Ripken. I, I will pass Cal Ripken this season uh, on his 26, whatever it was. Uh, so... Uh, in fact, they've talked a little bit at the Hawks about uh, maybe bringing him in uh, <laughs> for that game. I think it's like it's going to be in game. Somebody told me I think it's game fifty-seven this year that uh, I'll pass him. Uh, and they were talking about maybe bringing him in for like some presentation or something. That would be cool. And I'd like to get one other thing. I'd like to get before I either stop or pass or whatever. You know, I would like to get a bobblehead night sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Make that happen. People yeah, listening yeah. to the State of the well, Nation podcast. Well, it was brought up about 10 years ago uh, by a guy that worked in the marketing department at a, at their usual Monday morning meetings. This is funny because he told me about it. They, they He brought it up that night, that day at their meeting, and later that day he was let go. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think the bobblehead thing has come up since then because <laughs> he got fired. And I don't think it was because he recommended me for a bobblehead, but it just happened to work out it was that same day that they let him go. Would you want any input on what your bobblehead looked like? No, I'll let them do it. I, so, yeah, I just want to have it for the grandkids, you know. I have three of them now, so I'd like them to have a bobblehead or something that they can 
you know, remember me by. As a broadcaster, you have to be critical sometimes, and obviously without going over the edge. But a lot of times that maybe is not the same path that the marketing team and the advertising team wants you to take. Have you ever had to tiptoe that line? Not really. I mean, I've never, uh, honestly, in all my years, nobody's ever said, don't say that, or, you know, you shouldn't have said that. I mean, you have to be smart about it, too. When you work for a team, um, you know, they pay your salary. I mean, you could you could be fair. You could be honest about everything. And when somebody screws up, you could say it. Like, for when the love of God, there yeah, was right, another air that kind of thing, Because that's part of the game. But on the other hand, you can't listen to these talk show people that are going to blast you for being a homer or, you know, oh, he won't say it. Yeah, he doesn't do that. They don't pay me. They're not the people I work for. The people I work for are Hawks fans that are listening. And the people, the great majority of them, are Hawks fans that are listening to me. I'm broadcasting as a Hawks fan to Hawks fans. And now with the, you know, with the internet and everything else, there are a lot of, you know, a lot of guys that sit in their basements and listen to these things and they try to get gut you moments on everybody. You know, they try to find something that you said wrong or didn't do it. But I can't care about that. I care about the Atlanta people that are listening, Hawks fans that are listening. And, and honestly, they've never, the management has never said anything to me about it. Uh, but again, uh, if you work for a team, you can't be stupid. You know, you can't go out and try to be, uh, you know, Skip Bayless or somebody, uh, you know, <laughs> who's going to make controversy just for the sake of controversy because you won't last long doing that. And if you try to play to the talk show people that criticize you, then, then you're in trouble that way too because it doesn't work. And, and I ignore all of those people. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to if you have a night off, both nationally and maybe some under-the-radar people in your region? Well, John Sterling, who we've talked about, I, I love listening to John. You know, he's he's been a good friend of mine for years and years. Uh, so what I do is I, you know, I have the baseball package at home on DirecTV. So what I do is I turn that sound down and put on the uh, MLB app on my phone and play it through my bows. How do you get them to match up? You take the DVR and you slide it back. You sync it up, and it's it's not that hard to do. Uh, my son over at Mississippi does that uh, <laughs> at, at his house when the games are on, uh, so that's how they listen. But uh, yeah, so I listen to John and Susan every night uh, in the summertime. Uh, just I get a kick out of it, and uh, you know I listen that way. I, I, I Sean McDonough is one of my favorites, uh, you know, nationally, and he he did Red Sox for a long time, and. Uh, his his dad Will was was a good friend of mine too. You know, growing up there, he was very helpful to me. But Sean does a great job in everything that he does, football, baseball, basketball, you name it. Uh, he's good. I mean, I always loved even before I worked for Kurt Gowdy. I thought Kurt Gowdy was one of the the best ever. Uh, and and who doesn't like Doc Emmerich? You know, I mean, he's he's like the creme de la creme of of all announcers, not just the hockey thing. So, uh, you know, those are the guys that that I, I and I, most of our local. Most of our uh, NBA guys, you know, the local announcers, all do a great job. I mean, I, there are 30 radio jobs, 30 TV jobs, and people don't give them up, uh, <laughs> you know, and you've got to be pretty good to keep those. And, you know, Al McCoy in Phoenix is is 86 years old now. He's in his 48th year this season. Um, Ralph Lawler just retired uh, because he wanted to at age 80 uh, with the Clippers. Uh, you've got George Blaha, who's in his mid to late 70s in Detroit, and he hasn't stopped. And, uh, my buddy Gary Gerald does the Sacramento Kings, and he just turned 79 and has a new three-year contract with the Kings. 
So I mean, that's it, it's just what we do, you know. It's uh, it, it's how how you do it. Larry Munson, who did the uh, Georgia Bulldogs for forty years. I mean, he he was there right till the end too. So that's that's I guess it's what we do. If somebody wanted to reach out and get in touch with you, what would the best way to do that be? Uh, I have email. I have you know, it's a Hawks email, Steve Holman at Hawks dot com. You know, I'm open to all of the all emails and. Uh, you know, people come up to me at the games and talk to me. I'm, you know, I'm not one of those guys that uh, has people around him saying, you know, get back, stay back. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm open to everybody, especially young broadcasters like you. I like to, you know, I like to talk to everybody. Well, once again, we're talking with Steve Holman. He is the voice of the Atlanta Hawks. And Steve, thanks for sitting down with me here in this little corner of the Marriott and recording this podcast. Episode. Oh, I enjoyed it, Logan. Thank you. It was great. Good luck to you and your career. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow the show on social media by following me at radio underscore Logan on Twitter, or you can find other places to follow it on saythedamnscore.com. Honest feedback is always appreciated, whether that is through iTunes reviews, emails, smoke signals, whatever works for you. I just like to know how to make the show better so uh, it can continue to improve and you can enjoy it even more. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show so they know you appreciate them taking the time to share their stories on the pod. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.